Well, good morning again. I have a question to ask you this morning. The question we're going to consider is, are you committed? Are you committed? Now, I'm not asking if you've been committed to a mental institution, because if you have, I hope you're not here. I hope you are where you're supposed to be, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about at all, no. I'm talking about, do you make commitments? Are you a person who makes commitments? More than that, are you a person who keeps commitments? Are you someone who makes and keeps commitments? Because we don't see a lot of making and keeping commitments in the world around us today. If you turn on the TV, you watch some ads, or even just scrolling on the internet, you'll see advertisements telling you about how you can get out of your cell phone plan contract, how you can refinance and change your loan or something that you have. And there's nothing wrong with doing any of that. I'm just pointing out that we have a culture that doesn't really value commitment very much. We want to get out of these commitments that we have. In a much more serious manner, sometimes people aren't committed to perhaps a job they have. They don't come to work or complete the work they've been asked to do. Or, and perhaps even more sad, we see many marriages that fall apart as husband and wife not commit to one another. And even though the society around us doesn't seem to be very big on commitments, I think there's still something in each of us that values that idea of being committed. Because we see people who are committed to something and we praise them for it. Every year when a sports team wins a championship, they thank their fans who have been committed to them through thick and thin, through bad times and now in the good times. We praise the commitments of soldiers to their countries. And even though people say they don't value commitment or they don't think it's very important, even the outside world sees something valuable in husband and wife committed to one another. They see that there's something praiseworthy there. Well, in the same way, those of us who claim to be God's people, we're called to make commitments as well. We're called to be committed to God and to be committed to his people. And that's what we're going to discover today in our passage in the book of Nehemiah chapter 10. We're going to see what these commitments looked like for the Israelites back then. And we're going to see what kinds of commitments we need to make and keep today. Before we do that, though, it may be helpful for us to remember where we are in Scripture. So we've been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. These books are telling the story of God's people, the Israelites. They had been in a committed, a covenant, a binding relationship with God that had certain expectations. God was going to give them a land and bless them if they followed him. But they rejected that. They wanted to do their own thing, and so they went away into exile, away from the land that God had promised to give them. But now in these books, they are back in the promised land. They're fully back. They've restored their temple where they worship God. They've rebuilt the walls of their city, and they want things to be different this time. The last time we were in Nehemiah, we looked at chapter 9. They had a prayer of confession saying, yes, these are all the ways that we have failed. I think it's really illustrated in verse 33 in chapter 9, which they prayed, yet you, God, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. So the whole chapter is a prayer with that theme. God has been faithful even though we have not been. We have acted wickedly. And their response to that is now they're going to make a binding agreement, a solemn promise, a commitment to obey God, a covenant that emphasizes faithfulness and how serious they are. The very last verse of chapter 9 was this one. They said, because of all this, we make a firm 
covenant in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, our priests. And you might remember we talked about how that verse is actually in the Hebrew Bible. It's chapter 10, verse 1. It's really introducing our passage today. Now, as has been my habit going through these books, I'm going to not read all of the chapter. Verses 1 through 27, those are a list of the names of the people who are signing this covenant. They're the Israelite leaders, Nehemiah, their governor, their priests, Levites, the chiefs, the leaders of the people. They sign and seal this. The whole community is behind this covenant, this commitment to God. It's like when leaders at a, uh, some event, perhaps a natural disaster or something, there will be federal representatives, a state person, a local person. They're all standing together saying, we are supporting this effort. But then in verse 28 of chapter 10, we get to the covenant itself. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 10, verse 28, or pull it up on your phone. You can use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. It will also be up here on the screen. And I'd ask that once you are there, you please stand to honor the reading of God's word. And follow along as I read our passage for today. I'm reading chapter 10, verses 28 through 39 of Nehemiah. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 28 says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves, from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and statutes. Verse 30 says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Verse 32 continues, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a a shekel for the service of the house of our God. These are the things it's for, for the showbed, the regular grain offering, the regular burn offering, Sabbaths, new moons, appointed feasts, holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. Verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all fruit, of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. And also to bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons, our cattle, as it is written in the law, firstborn of our herds, our flocks, to bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground, for it is the Levites who collect these tithes in all our towns where we labor. Verse 38, And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive those tithes. The Levites shall bring the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel, 
And the sons of Levi shall bring contribution of grain, wine, oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us, that you have spoken to us through Scripture. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to see the commitments that you call us to. May we be committed to you and committed to your people. In those commitments, God, we are modeling the commitment of your Son, your servant, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was committed to us to save us. I pray, God, that as we talk about our commitments, we will not lose sight of him or sight of you. May you increase, and may what we do seem so small in comparison. Thank you, Lord, that you have done the work to save us and that you are the one who is worthy of praise. Thank you for being committed to us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So there's two major commitments that people are making in this passage. The first commitment that the Israelites are making is that they will be committed to God. Committed to God. If you want to use the outline that you should have received when you came in, the first blank is committed to God. We saw that in verses 28 through 31 as we just read through it. After the names of all their leaders are written in verses 1 through 27, now all of the people are included. Priests, Levites, singers, musicians, temple servants, all who are committed to God are described. And we're reminded of something that we talked about the last time we were in here. And that was when the people were coming to pray to God, to commit to him, they had separated themselves from those who were not worshiping God, removed themselves from those who were not praising God so they could be focused on this ceremony, this commitment. One scholar, Mervyn Brenneman, said, this was a definite community with definite limits. They had set aside, we are the people who are focusing on God right here at this place. They knew who was there. Now, it wasn't something that only an elite group could get into. Anyone who wanted to commit to God could separate from those who were not following him. They could come and say, yes, we are going to worship God. They left the ways, the customs, the practice, the lifestyle of those who didn't value what God said. And they came to the law of God. We are going to follow what God says. In many ways, this is a great description of how we come to faith in God. We leave behind ways, practices, sins that push us away from Him. And through Christ, we come to God in faith. In this passage, all of the community is included in this covenant, this agreement they're making with God. It's not only the men, but the wives, sons, daughters, anyone who could understand says they're going to be a part of this. And verse 29 tells us they enter into, they bind themselves with a curse and an oath to walk, to follow God's law that he gave through Moses. They're very serious about this. They are committing to observe to keep, to do what God has said, to follow his commandments, his rules, his statutes. They're going to obey him. Now, technically, these people are already in a relationship with God. They're already in a covenant with him. But here they're kind of renewing it. Like in a marriage ceremony, husband and wife renewing their vows. They're re-emphasizing this is what we're going to put priority on. This is what we're going to do and how we're going to follow God. 
the recommitting to the ideals of we want God to be first in our life. We want to follow Him even when it's hard. Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, by endorsing this document, a person understood that he and his family were a part of God's unique, set-apart people. And they're agreeing to live accordingly, rejecting the lifestyles of the pagans, those who did not know God, who lived near their community. This commitment is serious because it tells us that it involved a curse, a terrible, gruesome penalty for failing to keep the words of this covenant and this agreement. This is really illustrated by even what's, how it describes a covenant. In Hebrew, they, you don't really say to make a covenant. That's words we say. Well, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to make a covenant. They don't really do that. Their word is I'm going to cut a covenant. Cut a covenant. And the reason they say that is because how you sealed an agreement like this is you took an animal that you were going to offer a sacrifice, you cut it, in half, and you walked between it, and this was supposed to represent that I'm going to do what I have said, and if I don't, may what happened to this animal happened to me. This is made very clear in one of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah. This is God speaking, and he's talking about the Israelites failing, and he says, the men who transgressed my covenant did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me. I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. I know that's gruesome and unpleasant to think about, and I went for the cutest picture of a calf that I could find to really just drive that home. But it's, it's showing how serious they are. This is how much they value what we want to follow God in this way that we are going to say that if we don't, that is what will happen to us. They're committing to walk in God's law, to obey Him continually, and accept the consequences that may come if they fail. This is very similar to a commitment that King Josiah, one of the Israelite kings, made in the book of 2 Kings. The king stood by a pillar. He made a covenant, or again in Hebrew it would be he cut a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in that covenant. In that passage, as well as in our verse 29, we see that phrase, commandments, statutes, rules, talking about God's detailed instructions on how to follow Him. That's what we have in our Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. We have God's law, His instructions for His people. And this kind of commitment, we're going to follow God, that's an appropriate response to God's law. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. I have one passage here that's interesting. We may be familiar with one of these verses. The other one we might not be as familiar with. In Psalm 119, 105, you may have heard this. It says, Your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We have songs that sing that. But the very next verse, 106, says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. It's easy to say, oh God, thank you for your word, which gives me a light, which shows me where to go. It's much harder to say, God, I'm going to keep and do what you have said. And the truth is, if we try to do that on our own, we won't be able to. And fortunately for us, we know that if, if we know God through Christ, we have a new covenant, a new relationship with God. One that's not based on something that we had to earn, to get in the right position with him, but that's based on Christ's gift to us, that he earned it 
on our behalf. But just because Christ did that for us, that doesn't mean that we now live however we want. No, we should be committed to God, committed to following Him and doing what He says. Not to earn favor with Him, but out of gratitude. How do we do this? How do God's people commit to God and follow Him? Well, here, the Israelites, they figure it out themselves, and they give two examples of what it's going to look like for them. In their time, these were two big issues for them about how they could obey God when things were hard. Verse 30 tells us the first one. They're not going to give their children into marriages with the people of the land around them, the people who did not follow God. Here they're obeying the law from the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 7, where they're told, you shall not intermarry with the people who are around you, giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons. Not because they're mean, but, verse 4, because they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly. Here in this covenant, they put it first because they know how serious it is. If you've been following along as we've been going through this book, this is something that's popped up again and again. This happened before they even lost the promised land. Before they were in exile, they were marrying people who were not worshiping God. And that's part of what led them into exile, away from the promised land. As soon as they got back, they got right back to it. We talked about this back in the book of Ezra. Chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra, they have to try to fix this. Here they're committing to it that it's going on, but we want to do something about it. We'll see, though, in a few weeks when we get to Nehemiah 13 that it's still going to be a problem. They go back to their old ways. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about it in those messages before. The issue here is not that these other people were a different race or ethnicity. That, that's not what's going on here at all. No, what's going on is that they worshipped different gods. They had a different faith. It was not a question of race. It was a question of faith. They were worshipping gods who were not gods. And so by the Israelites marrying with them, it said something about what they thought marriage was about. If we're the people of God, we know our marriage is supposed to point others to God's grace and His goodness. For believers, our choices say something about God. One pastor, James Hamilton, said, we want to cultivate wonderful marriages so that our marriages will display Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. That's what they're trying to do, the people here. They want to pursue purity and holiness for the community. They want to have such marriages, such relationships that people look and say, you know, there's something different about those Israelites, how they love one another, how they treat one another. I, I want to know what's going on with them. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with that strange God that they worship. On the other hand, creating close, binding ties with someone who doesn't know God, well, that can lead us away from Him. So that's why they emphasize that, that we want to be committed to what God has said about marriage. The second example that they give is in verse 31. They give a kind of very specific situation. They're saying when these people who live around them, those who are not worshiping God, come to them and try to sell them goods on the Sabbath, on Saturday, or on a holy day they were supposed to set apart to worship God, they're committing we will not buy from them. Here they're obeying what God has said about the Sabbath, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. At this time, keeping the Sabbath, keeping Saturday as a day where you did not work, that was something that marked God's people as unique. It showed their commitment 
to God. Now this morning, we're, we're not going to take the time to dive in and explore the relationship. What does the Sabbath mean to Christians today? We're not going to do that right now. Although um, later, I think in a few months, we'll, we'll get to that. For today, we should note why they're doing this. Keeping this Sabbath, setting Saturday apart, showed that they were committed to God. It showed the world they followed God. And by making this commitment here, it, it looks like they're addressing a little loophole. It seems what was happening is people were saying, okay, so I'm not supposed to work to, on a Saturday. But you see Nehemiah and other Israelites, I'm not working. It's these other people. They're coming in and they're doing the work and they're just trying to sell me these things. All I'm doing is handing them some money and they're giving me stuff. That, that's really not work. But they seem to be missing the point what the Sabbath was supposed to be, a day for rest and reflection on God. It was very tempting to do what everyone else is doing, make some money every day. Well, this is about more than just one day off. The end of verse 31 tells us that they also need to keep other commitments of rest. Every seven years, they were supposed to not uh, plant crops and harvest them. They were to let the fields lay bare. And every seven years, they were to forgive every debt that someone owed them. That was the commitment they were supposed to keep. And here they are saying, we are going to do that now. All of those things, not working on one day, not even planting crops one year, forgiving debts, that's, that's a huge trust in God. They're trusting God is going to provide for us in these situations. Nobody else around them did that. That, that would be foolish to every other culture. But it showed that they were committed to God. They have very good intentions about this. We're going to do these things. We're going to honor God in this way. Again, when we get to chapter 13, we'll see that they failed at this as well. So that's them. But let, let's talk about us. What does this mean for us, this type of commitment to God they're making? Talking about marriage, talking about not working on Saturday. How does that affect us? Well, we should ask ourselves the question, what is it that makes us distinct? What makes us different from those who do not have a relationship with God. If we're a believer, we believe in God and trust in him. We should ask, what is it about my life that, that shows others that I'm different, that God has made a difference in my life? Now, this is very tricky because we have to strike a balance between just separating from everybody who's not a believer, but we also want to be distinct in terms of how we live. And the solution is to live differently. There are things about being a follower of Christ that will make you different from other people. First of all, you'll, you'll be here on a Sunday morning. You could be doing other things with your life, but you'll say, no, I, I want to be with God's people on the day that his people gather to worship. You'll live differently in that you'll, you'll give some money to support what God is doing. You'll live differently in that you'll value holiness and goodness more than your own desires. You'll see, I... This is something I want, but I know it, it's not holy. I know it's not good. I know it's not what God says, so I'm going to choose not to do that. You'll place God above your own interest. Those are the types of things you'll think about. Again, Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, look at your life, your home, your work, your worship, and ask yourself, am I really distinct? Could a person get to know the real me and see God's message on display? If somebody really looked at you and at your life, would they see something's different about you? Somebody's done something in your heart to make you different. Or would they say, you know what, you're, you're just like everybody else. If we know God, there should be a difference 
in our character and how we live. Faith in God will lead us to live differently. Now maybe that sounds really hard and really difficult, and it is. We need help to do that. God will help us, but we also have something else that will help us because we're not enough for us to be just committed to God. God's people are also to be committed to God's people. We have others to help us follow God in this way. So we're not only committed to God, but committed to God's people. And that's really what's coming through in verses 32 through 39. They're committed to God's people together, worshiping and serving God. In this passage, they commit to go above and beyond the Old Testament law by giving, they say, one-third of a shekel, one of their coins, one-eighth an ounce of silver to serve God's house. Why are they going above and beyond to do this? One scholar put it this way, God's people must be true to their calling as a worshiping community. They knew they needed to worship, and by going above and beyond, they could do that. They could worship God well. By collecting this extra money, verse 33 tells us there's a list of things that it could pay for. They could give it to the priest who could purchase what they needed to worship God at that time. In 34, they create a schedule of how we're going to provide for the worship of God. In order to do that, they had to burn offerings. They needed wood, so they made a schedule about who was going to bring wood at a particular time. Here they're seeking to honor God's command in places like Leviticus 6, where he says, Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So look what they're doing. They're looking at God said that the fire should keep going. We need to make sure the fire keeps going. Let's make a schedule about how everybody can bring what's needed so that we can serve God together. They then obligate themselves and assume responsibility for we're going to follow what God has said concerning his offering. This is in verses 35 and 37 we read. It's talking about what is supposed to happen. What was supposed to happen with God's people is that they were supposed to bring the first fruits, the best of the very first thing that they harvest. They were to bring that for an offering. They were also to pay an offering when they had their firstborn son. They were also to give the firstborn animal that they had to their local Levites, their local religious leaders. They were to give the best of their first work. As the law says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. The reason they were bringing this firstborn is a reminder of something that God did for them. Back when they were slaves in the land of Egypt, the very last thing that happened to lead God to to bring his people into freedom, was that he went through and he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians who were keeping them enslaved. And he spared them. He passed over the Israelites. And so every time they had a firstborn, they brought it to God. It was a reminder of what God had done for them. And if the people would have done this, if they would have brought their, their first fruits, if they would have brought their, their firstborn, paid, and said that this is representing that God has saved my firstborn child, if they would have done that, then their religious leaders could have focused on their duties. They could have worshipped God, and they wouldn't have to spend time farming to provide for themselves. They could have given to their leaders, the Levites, and the Levites would have given to the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were in the temple. That's what the people promised they're going to do. The phrase they used, the very last phrase of our passage was this, we will not neglect the house of our God. You might remember when I was trying to read the passage, I emphasized that word house. It, it shows up nine times in these verses. They are talking about God's house, where God is worshipped, where God's people could be in his presence. 
they are committing that they will not abandon the place where God is worshipped. They will not abandon God's mission to bring people to know Him. They're committing to remain in a relationship with God. By supporting those who worked in the temple, they're making sure God is worshipped and people can see that and people will come to know Him. This honored God, encouraged greater faithfulness to Him. This is the commitment they want to make. However, as is often the case with the Israelite people and really with us, they, they fail in this. We'll see in chapter 13, but I did want to read this one. In chapter 13, Nehemiah leaves, but then he comes back and he says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers, those who were supposed to be doing the work in the temple, they had fled to his field. They went home to get food for themselves. So I confronted the officials and said, you're doing such a good job not neglecting the house of God. No, he says, why is the house of God forsaken? The people needed God's help for this commitment. Now, talking about this, about how they're focusing on God's people and on God's house, the real obvious application to our life we could go with is that we're supposed to give to God's church and give to support His work. God's people are to give financially to what He is doing. And that's always a reminder that we need. But my job is, yes, to explain what God says, but also to speak to you, my church, family, that I know and love. And uh, if I can be a little honest, you, you've been very faithful in this area. I'm preaching through the Word. This is the next passage we have. That's the obvious application. We need that reminder. But you have been very faithful, extremely faithful in your giving. If I can just brag on you, something that I'll always think about and remember all of my life is back last year when we were unable to meet together, early in, when COVID was first coming to the, to the country, the federal government had a small business loan thing that they offered where small business could get some money to support them during the time. And they offered it to churches as well. And I'm not saying right or wrong, but I, I have friends who are pastors. Their churches applied and probably received some of that money. We are leaders here. We, we discussed that. We thought, is that something we want to do? And we said, no, we, we want to have faith that God will provide and that people will continue to support what is happening. And you were faithful. We encountered no struggles at all. In fact, you gave even more than you have. So thank you so much for your faithfulness in, in what this passage is illustrating here. And if I can have a, another moment in, of pride in, in you all, you're also very generous in your giving. We together as a church, our church gives 14%. That's 14 out of every $100 we get, we send to what our denomination calls the cooperative program that supports church planting and missionaries. That's 14%. And that's out of the larger 22%. That's 22 out of every $100 we get that doesn't stay here in the church, that goes to support other people doing God's work in our community, our state, and around the world. 22%. Just so you know, that is very unusual. Not many churches do that or are that generous. I know pride's not a good thing to have, but I had a little pride about a month ago. I was at the Southern Baptist Convention, our, our meeting of our denomination, and I was next to a friend of mine. And we were watching what was happening, and when somebody would be nominated to some position that we were voting for, they'd often say how much their church gave to the cooperative program. Well, one candidate, they, they said figures like 8 and 10%. I didn't think much about it. Uh, but one candidate 
they, the person introducing them said, his church gives 14%. And my friend looked at me and said, wow, 14%, that's a lot. I've never heard of a church doing that. Um, and so in moment of pride, I was like, yeah, well, that, that, that's what ours does as, as well. Um, and he said, that, that's our entire missions giving. That, that's all we give out. I, I didn't tell him that we give 22% to, to that. I decided to keep that aspect to myself. But church family, I, I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness in giving and serving God in that way. And to be clear, that doesn't mean, okay, so we're done. I don't have to write anything, any more checks, any more money the rest of the year. I'm good. Pastor John said thank you, so that, that's it. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm saying. God, God is, his people are committing that they're going to do that. I just want to say thank you for giving and supporting God's work. So if we're doing well there, then, then how do we apply this to our life? Because we always want to take what Scripture says and specifically apply it to our life. Well, as I was reflecting on this passage, I thought that this giving wasn't just really about giving money. It wasn't giving so that there could be some type of offering going on. What was really happening is this giving showed their public commitment to God's people, that they were committed to God's people to worship and serve together. That's really what they were showing. By giving these things, we are committed that we are a part of God's people and we are serving, we are worshiping with God's people. That's what it looked like then for them to do it. Today, what that looks like for those of us who know God is that we are joining and serving through a local church, that we're partnering with other believers. We are going to serve and worship him. Josh spoke last week. He talked about this a little from Ephesians chapter 4, that he talked about how we relate to one another, how that's tied to our identity in Christ. As I was thinking about what he shared in my quiet time, my time with Jesus this week, I came across Romans 12, 4 through 6. We read it earlier. It says, For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, we are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. Every member of our church is supposed to be giving, serving together with each unique gift, talent, personality God has given us so that we as a church can move forward together, impact our community, make disciples, make followers of God here. Now, maybe you're not a member of this church or you're not a member of another church. Well, I, I encourage you that if you know Jesus Christ, you, you should be member of a church. You should be partnered with other believers. If you live, live here and you want to know more about what that looks like here, well, talk to me. I'd be happy to share what that process is here. There are many places we could talk about why that's important, but we're in Nehemiah 10. If you want to see why it's important, look at those first 27 verses. I didn't read them, but look at them. It's a list of names. They kept a list of the people who were committed. They knew who was in and out. They knew who God's people were. They knew these are people who are committed to following him. Now, I, I know that that may be a hurdle for you. You may think, I, being committed like, like that thing, I, I'm, not very, I'm not very thrilled with that. Maybe it's because you view yourself as an independent person or a free-spirited person. I, I kind of like to follow my own way. Me and Jesus, we've got a nice thing going. And I, I, I understand that, and we all have different personalities, but just because you're an independent person, a free-spirited person, that does not give you an excuse to ignore your brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture calls us to care for and love one another. Now, perhaps you've had a different experience. Maybe you have been 
a part of church before and you've experienced either uh, lies or deception, some type of brokenness, perhaps you've been mistreated, perhaps uh, spiritually or even, even in physically abused in, in some way. And I know that's this fear of getting hurt again or of getting hurt, that, that can be a major barrier to wanting to join and be a part of God's people. To see more leaders, more people fail. And the truth is, people are sinners. And there's nothing I can say that can guarantee that that, that kind of thing won't happen here or anywhere else. But what I would say, and this is not something that's unique to me, is that God calls us to be a part of his people, and so we shouldn't date a church, is what I read. Don't date a church. And what I mean by that is the way many people approach dating is you meet somebody, you get to know them, you spend time together, you date them, and you're looking for that problem, that one thing, that when that shows up, okay, then I can end this now. So you're not pursuing something, you're just looking, searching for that one problem. And sometimes if we're looking for a place to serve, worship God, we can have that same attitude. I'll stick around until I find that problem, and then I can go. Well, let me just save you the trouble of doing that if you want to do that here. The spoiler alert is, we have issues, we have problems. You stick around, you will find them and discover them. But guess what? Every church, every group of people has issues because it's made up of people. And we struggle, we, we fall, we have problems. There is no perfect church. Now, if we're looking for a place to get involved with God's people, we should have due diligence with it. We should look at their beliefs and their practice. How do they follow God? I'm not telling you to rush anything, but you should be very purposeful about moving forward. I want to find a place to be a part of God's people, where together I can commit with other believers to follow him. Be purposeful about moving forward. Personally, I think that's good advice for pursuing a romantic relationship, but I know it's God's desire for the church. Be purposeful. God's people are not to be lone rangers. We're to be united with other Christians. If you live here, in this area, we'd love for you to be a part of what's happening here at East Shore. Our desire is to be a church that reflects our community, that represents God's kingdom. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you've done in the past, who you voted for, what your job is, you are welcome here because our mission is to glorify God, model Christ, extend his love, build his church. Now, if you're interested in a little of that, or perhaps you're Probably most of you here are a part of this church. What, what does it look like? What does it mean to be a member of, not just this church, but any church? Does it mean that you sign up, you stamp your ticket, you can sit back and relax? No. No, it doesn't mean that. The last time we had a membership meeting where we talk about what's happening here at the church, it was back in May, I, I introduced a kind of goal for us to strive for. I called it Every Week, Every Member. It's what membership looks like here at East Shore. So I'm going to show it to you. It has a bunch of blanks. You don't have to rush to write it down because we're, we're going to take each one individually. But every week, every member, what membership looks like here, and really what it should look like at any church, but what it looks like here at East Shore is that every week, every member receives God's word. Every week, every member responds to God's word. Every week, every member is served. Every week, every member is serving so that every week, Every member is growing, and every week, God is glorified. 
I hope you noticed a, a bit of repetition there with the beginning there. I'm really emphasizing every week. Being a church member is something we do every week. It should impact us every day. Joining a church is not like joining a gym on January 1st, something you do and then forget about until the bill comes in. No, that, that's, that's not what it's like. It should have a major impact on our life. Now, I, I understand life happens. I understand we take vacations. I, I understand that family emergencies come up. I understand a relative may be sick and you need to spend time caring for them. I understand your job all of a sudden might change and there's nothing you can do in the moment. I, I get that. But unless we're providentially hindered by God, we should strive to be with His people, participating at church every week. Why is that important? Well, for the reasons listed there. What happens each week? Well, first, each week, every week, every member receives God's Word. Every week, you come here, if you're a member, you receive God's truth, His teaching. That happens through the sermon, like right now, but that also happens through the classes that meet before this. This happens on Wednesday nights. You are taught about God here at East Shore Baptist Church. We're doing this in obedience to commands like James 1, which says, therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We receive God's word. But it's not just something we receive, because every week every member responds to God's word. We not only receive it, we respond to it. We specifically apply what the Bible says to our lives. We see, oh, this is what it says? How does that flesh out, work itself out in my life? We're not just hearing what the pastor, the teacher is saying, but we are applying, doing, responding to God's truth. I read James 1.21 just a second ago. It talked about where to receive with meekness the implanted word. The very next verse says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Responding to God's word isn't a vague, well, this passage talks about people loving others, so I guess I need to love other people more. No, 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 that's, that's not responding to God's word. Responding to God's word is, oh, I'm supposed to love others more. I'm going to show love for this person specifically. I'm going to call this person I know is lonely. I'm going to rake leaves for this neighbor that I know needs help. It's a specific application of God's word. So we receive God's word. We respond to God's word. Every week, every member is also should be served. Members should, should be served. Every member should be connected, supported by the church. When we come here together, we are serving one another, caring for one another. This particularly happens here at the church building. I understand what happened last year. and I understand that things aren't 100% where they need to be, but the goal is to be here where you can be connected, be served be encouraged with one another the the goal we're setting for ourselves is that we're serving one another to such an extent that if someone is not here that we're reaching out to them contacting them showing love to them not in a creepy i'm not going to walk around with an attendance sheet every day call out name bueller bueller or whatever your name is I'm not talking about that but i'm talking about we have such connected relationships with one another that if somebody's not here we're like oh you know Joan wasn't here today. I should call Joan and see what's going up on her. Maybe something's happening in her life that I can pray for her about or support her. We're to love and serve one another. We don't want people to be left out, to slip in one door and slip out another in terms of being a part of this body. As Galatians 5 says, you were called to freedom, 
brothers. We can do whatever we want, but only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, to your own desires, but instead, through love, serve one another. God saves us. He sets us free. And it should, He should set us free to serve and love one another. That's why we're working on things like making sure we know uh, who our members are, having an accurate understanding of that. Like this list that we read in our chapter. So we know how, who to care for, how we can do that. But this isn't just a place where you're served. Every week, every member should also be serving. Serving one another. Every member should be serving through the church in some way. I've got bad news for you. The church is not a place where you come on Sunday morning just to sit and listen to, to me talk. That, that, that's really not what this place is about. Maybe there's other places that that's what they do, but that's not what we're about. This is a place for all of us together to serve God. As 1 Peter 4 says, as each has received a gift, we use it to serve one another. We're being good stewards, good representatives of God's varied grace that he has given us. And if we do that, if we are each serving together, something is going to happen. As it says, so that every week, every member is growing, and every week, God is glorified. There are no finished products here. You never retire from being a Christian. We are to continue to grow, to become more and more like Jesus until we are with him. The second Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is what being a church member, particularly being a church member here, should look like. This is what it should be about. Now, there are many, many members of our church who are very committed and serve in so many ways, I don't know how they do it. My, my goal here is not to send us all on a guilt trip of what we need to do, but to clarify who we are. We're people who are here every week. We're receiving God's Word, responding to it. We're being served and being encouraged, but we're also serving others. And when that happens, we are growing more and more every week so that God receives more and more praise. This is not a place for you to be comfortable. This is a place for you to grow to be more like Jesus. I'm not going to deliberately like put spikes on your seat. I'm not, I'm not saying that comfort is not important in any way, shape, or form, but the goal is for us to grow to be more like Christ. And we all have room to grow. Maybe this list of things will help you. You can think, am I here each week? Do I make it a priority to be with God's people? Am I receiving God's word? Am I listening to, absorbing what is being taught about Scripture, God's Word when it's offered? Am I applying it to my life? Am I responding to what is taught? Or does it come in one ear and out the other? I strive very hard to apply Scripture to us. And I, I know I could improve in that. We can all improve how we apply it. So I strive very hard to talk about here's how you can apply it. But I can't make you do anything. It's your responsibility to say, this is what God has said. This is how I'm going to apply it in my life. And then we think about serving. Am I serving? Am I loving the people of this church? Am I seeing other people not as people who get in my way, not as someone who sits in my seat, but am I seeing other people as this is somebody I can love and care for? Am I seeking to know the people around me and figure out how can I address their needs? How can I care for them? How are you serving 
in and through the church? Are you serving? Have you found a way to plug in? If not, have a conversation with me. I'd love to figure out how you can serve in and through our church. If you're here, and if you decide to become a member with us, then God has a purpose for you here. Now, if you're not a member of this church or another church, well, we would love for you to be a part of what's happening here. Please talk to me about that. But maybe you're someone else. Maybe you are, wouldn't consider yourself a follower of God or a Christian at all, or you're not sure about that. And all this talk about uh, being a member, being connected with God's people, that all sounds really strange to you. This idea that God's people are committed to God, committed to his people, that sounds weird. I, I understand that. It's different from how others live. But my hope is that, even if it sounds strange, that there's also something appealing about that. That this idea that people would be committed in a way that others aren't to living for the Lord and committed to loving one another no matter what in a way that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. I think there's something very appealing about that. And I hope that you see that. In the world around you, people will often bail out at the first sign of trouble. But in God's people and his family, we're to be committed to one another no matter what. I encourage you to ask questions, learn more about that. And especially encourage you if you don't know God, as much as God's people supporting one another, how great that is, God's commitment to us is far greater. He showed his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, still enemies of him, Christ died. He is faithful. He is committed to loving you in a way far beyond anyone else could. And you can know Him by having a relationship with Christ. If you've turned away from sin and you've placed your faith and trust in Him, you can know a relationship of faithfulness like no other. If you don't know Him, please talk to me. Talk to someone else about that. That is the best commitment that you can make because it's based on God's commitment to you. So let me ask you, friends, are you committed? I hope you are, because Jesus is worthy of that kind of response.